Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Chris Babbitts. Today's guest is Abram Van Engen, the author of City on a Hill, A History of American Exceptionalism, published by Yale University Press. In City on a Hill, Professor Van Engen traces how the myth of Puritan origins gained traction in the United States, noting that John Winthrop Sermon, a model of Christian charity, was relatively unknown before the middle of the 20th century. Yet, as he shows by the end of the book, various historical actors, from Harvard academics to most famously Ronald Reagan, have made Winthrop's phrase, city on a hill, an essential part of the nation's political lexicon. Our conversation today will provide some context into how Winthrop's most famous line from a model of Christian charity was lost, rediscovered, and then transformed into an essential part of American social and political life. Thank you so much for being with us, Abram. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. To get things started, could you tell our listeners a little about yourself? Sure. I'm an English professor at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, and I specialize in early American literature and history and culture. Uh, When I went to graduate school, I was planning to do 20th century poetry and uh, literary theory, but then somehow I ended up writing a more or less historical account of 17th century Puritanism. Uh, so basically, I've taken the more sort of historicist approach in my research and writing. But I do really love thinking more generally about how interpretation and appropriation happens over time. Uh, and that's a lot of what this book is about, is about sort of how one text comes to mean what it means and how it gets reappropriated uh, across almost four centuries. Wonderful. Uh, let's start or let's continue with a little bit of background information for our listeners who might not be very uh, well acquainted with the history of Puritanism. So who was John Winthrop and what message did he share in a model of Christian charity? So John Winthrop was the first Puritan governor of Massachusetts Bay. He's the one who brought the charter over with him uh, in 1630. And he and his big migration of Puritans founded uh, Boston in 1630. But he wasn't the first Puritan here. Uh, Depending on how you count them, the pilgrims were already here. Uh, Other Puritans had come uh, a little bit previous to that. Uh, But John Winthrop's uh, sort of city on a hill sermon becomes famous for that line and gets appropriated as a kind of origin moment uh, in American history, this this idea that we shall be as a city upon a hill. Uh, we don't know exactly when or where or even if he delivered this sermon. There's a lot of mystery around the sermon itself. Uh, but the basic message of the sermon was rather simple. It's basically, let's love one another and not die. Uh, so he spends the first half of the sermon talking about what people owe each other in lots of different circumstances, and then spends the second half of the sermon saying, Basically, what we owe each other is whatever love requires. So it's a very communitarian sermon, uh, mostly against self-love and against the selfish pursuit of profits or gains, anything that would um, cause harm to others in in pursuit of our own gain. Uh, and that's sort of what Winthrop was really concerned about as they were going off to, uh, to, to create a new sort of uh, settler colony. Great. Why have previous scholars not entirely understood about Winthrop's sermon. Obviously, this is something that's been written about extensively over 70 years, but what did you find that either challenged previous scholars or kind of pushed the limits of our understanding about this? Yeah, it's been studied a lot and written about a great deal. And so to to take up the study again seemed on the one hand sort of, well, what am I going to have to add to this? I, I, I was most interested in this story of how this sermon comes to be famous. 
But I also am very interested about the text itself and what it means in and of itself. One of the great mysteries about this text is how the, actually the, the thing holds together, because it does have these two radically different parts to it. The first part, which when my students read, they think is just ridiculously boring and, <laughs> and, and sort of obtuse and weird, is, is about how we give and lend. And it's about loans and forgiveness of loans and, and all this sort of exchange stuff. And then the second half is is got lines like, uh, to love and to live, beloved, is the soul's paradise. And it's talking about marriage unions, and and it's it's all about love and 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 how great love is, and sort of what do what do these halves of the sermon have to do with one another, uh, and how does this actually constitute one sermon? So when I started studying the thing, what I began to realize pretty quickly is that it does have a very standard Puritan sermon format. But what's missing is actually the first part of a Puritan sermon, which is the scripture that you are unfolding and making sense of. And so all the parts of the Puritan sermon are there. They all happen in order, except for that first part. So what I argue in the book is basically that we're missing part of this manuscript. Uh, And given the fact that we only have one copy of the manuscript, it's not that unusual to be missing part of a manuscript that gets handed down. Um, And so I, I try to make sense of how the sermon actually holds together by trying to locate the first part, what would be the scripture that would actually hold this thing all together? And I think that's a great segue into the next question I have, because you have this wonderful chapter about these different versions of the Bible and how they play in interpreting and understanding what Winthrop was saying in a model of Christian charity. Can you talk about what you did in that chapter that looks at the Geneva Bible and the King James Bible? Yeah, that was actually a really fun chapter to write. Um, So what I was interested in was, so first what I did was I I set aside all the scriptural citations that Winthrop makes in his sermon, and then I went and traced uh, what translation is he using. He's got almost 60 different uh, citations. Uh, And as I tracked each one towards the Bible, the translation that he's using, what I discovered is that this whole sermon is based on the Geneva Bible. That's That's what's standing behind the text. Well, that matters because the Geneva Bible had all these notes and commentaries that filled the margins. So we know that when people use the Geneva Bible and when they're quoting scripture from the Geneva Bible, they're also pulling in all this extra commentary that exists in the Geneva Bible and that does not exist on purpose in the King James Bible. The other thing that is sort of important about this the Geneva Bible at the time was had its own sort of significance by 1630. Basically, by 1630, it, it was more or less outlawed. Uh, King James wanted to use the King James Bible. Uh, and so use of the Geneva Bible was itself a kind of act of resistance. The Bible had taken on this kind of resonance uh, onto itself. It, w- it really wasn't designed that way. Uh, but when the king sort of interpreted it that way, that's the, the way the Bible uh, came to mean, what, the significance it came to hold. So I, bas- I have a whole chapter explaining how these translations competed for public authority in the 17th century, what it meant to use one Bible or another, and how uh, you know these, these Bibles make a, a lot of difference when you go to quote from one or the other, and when you pull from the marginalia in one that isn't in another, and so on. Um, so anyway, it's 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 the use of the Geneva Bible that helps make sense of the sermon itself and the significance of the sermon in context. Yeah, and we were talking before we started the recording about how I'm a 20th century Americanist and how this was absolutely fascinating to understanding this this text from the t- 17th century. And I would have never even thought about going in the direction you did to do this detective work. 
Yeah, I, I love um, book history in general, um, but I also love the way that a book, even before you open it, comes to carry all sorts of meaning and significance. And the Geneva Bible has all of that uh, meaning laden in it, uh, even before you begin to use it, even before you can decide it. There's a lot of passages in the Geneva Bible that are the exact same in the King James Bible, but in the Geneva Bible are filled with commentary that don't exist in the King James. So it makes a big difference which book you're holding, which book you're using, and all the significance of one book to another. So that was a, I, I really enjoyed getting into that sort of book history in that moment. One of the really interesting things about your book is that within our cultural memory, we think about Winthrop's sermon as a foundational text for forming an American identity, but you describe how two historical societies in the antebellum era discovered, preserved, and printed a model of Christian charity in the 1830s. So what's important for readers to know about some of the individuals who helped found these historical societies and their role in not only preserving, but also erasing parts of the American past? Yeah, so the larger book is really about American exceptionalism um, and the story of American exceptionalism. Winthrop's City on a Hill sermon becomes a big piece of that story, especially uh, in Reagan and, and the way that Reagan uses it. But I'm interested more generally in this book about how mythic histories of America come to take shape and, and sort of what power or influence they, they generally have. So, so the fact that we have Winthrop's sermon at all owes itself uh, to this belief in American exceptionalism, especially as it was circulating right after the American Revolution. Um, we have the sermon because historical societies preserved it and published it. And we have those historical societies because the founders of those societies basically believed uh, in the 1790s, that America had become a city on a hill. So the founders of these societies, folks like Jeremy Belknap, started collecting and preserving historical material because they just basically thought the whole world is going to want to know America's history. Now, on the one hand, that's great because we've got a lot of this material that they collected and that they set aside and that they preserved. And on the other hand, what they were setting aside, what they were collecting was all the material that preserved a certain narrative they had about America. So the folks who founded these historical societies basically believed that America had achieved an era of liberty that the world had never seen before, and that we were basically a city upon a hill. So the very belief that ends up saving the City on a Hill sermon and making a big deal out of it is the belief that founded the societies <laughs> themselves that started collecting this material. I think one thing that you uh, do really well uh, throughout a couple of the chapters is you also show how these historical societies might have erased Native Americans for the story, from the story of America. I was wondering if you could talk about that for a second or two. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's hard to tell uh, a story about the progress and liberty in America if you begin that story with Native Americans. It just is, right? Um, their story often gets erased. Uh, in order for the stories of American exceptionalism to take hold. Um, Native Americans have been a particularly difficult barrier for American exceptionalism, if American exceptionalism is the story of the progress of liberty in America. Uh, and so folks like Jeremy Belknap, who founded the Massachusetts Historical Society, on the one hand, they did really amazing work to preserve history. And on the other hand, they had really terrible and, and basically reprehensible views of Native Americans who they thought of as basically part of the wilderness. They were just sort of treated as the backdrop or the setting 
on which the story unfolds. And so by the end of his life, Belknap basically believes Native Americans need to disappear or get out of the way for this great American unfolding story. So they're they're not treated as part of the American story. They're basically the setting against which the American story unfolds. And so he basically erases Native Americans from the, from the American story so that he can tell a kind of exceptionalist narrative and go about collecting and preserving historical material. Another really fascinating thing is, uh, is obviously this idea of origins or beginnings that is needed for an exceptionalist tale. And to make Winthrop's sermon the beginning of American history, you, you talk about how textbook authors and 19th century historians had to brush over some important settlements like Jamestown and even Plymouth. So how did they go about elevating 1630 over other potential starting points, say the years 1607, 1619, or 1620? Yeah, uh, well, the simplest answer is they just kind of did it. I mean, that's the thing about origin stories is that you don't really need to care about what came before it. Uh, You just uh, pronounce something, the origin or the first of its kind, and anything before it gets more or less erased. Uh, There's a great book on this by Jean O'Brien called Firsting and Lasting, where she talks about first as a verb. To first something is basically to proclaim it the first of its kind, uh, even if it wasn't the first of its kind, and then everything else before it gets erased. You know, the stories that go into the making of American exceptionalism, the sort of histories, the historical narratives that frame it, all turn on a, on a kind of origin story. And it's very hard to tell um, stories of American exceptionalism if you begin in 1607 with Jamestown or in 1619 with the first enslaved Africans. Um, it works a lot better if you begin in 1620 with the arrival of the pilgrims, and then you can claim or make the claim and you can try to build out a story that, hey, they came here for religious liberty and that's what we've stood for ever since. Uh, what's interesting about this origin is that also just it just gets blended together with the general New England Puritan um, uh, environment. So even though John Winthrop came 10 years later than the pilgrims with a different ethos and a different um, um, charter and a different colony, They just get sort of the pilgrims and Puritans just become sort of one vague general origin of liberty for the for the big story. And so you'll see people quoting Winthrop's uh, City on a Hill sermon as though he came with the pilgrims in 1620, as though it's just part of the whole big Mayflower story. And once you have a, a, a good mythic origin story in place, then the more precise details of history just kind of get erased. Throughout the book, you have a real knack for boiling down really complex um, ways in which we remember events and how we can also manipulate events to our own purpose. So for example, uh, in one of your chapters, you write, people can find in the past whatever they want or need. And I thought that was fascinating. I, you know, we, we see this happening, uh, especially with hist- uh, current day American exceptionalism, and, and we'll get to that uh, a little bit later. But between 1870 and 1930, you talk about three different competing interpretations of Puritan New England and how they emerged. And you highlight how none of these interpretations actually relied on the model of Christian charity to make its point. What were these three interpretations of Puritan New England? And why was Winthrop's sermon not necessary for them? Yeah, thanks. So, yeah, we do see this happening all the time. And um, I mean, what I was more or less paraphrasing there in that quote is is Van Wyck's, uh, Van Wyck Brooks's comment uh, to that effect in his essay, Creating a Usable Past. Uh, he was one of the main voices behind the rise of these three traditions from 1870, more or less, to 1930. 
Um, so, so basically, what are those three traditions? One is basically the claim that the Pilgrims and Puritans brought civil and religious liberty to America, and everyone in America had been building on that foundation ever since. Um, a second sort of rising tradition at this time basically offered the opposite point of view. Basically, the Puritans brought oppression, repression, suppression, all the bad pressions, uh, all disagreement. All, they, 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 basically, they were um, against all pleasure and happiness and enjoyment and art and everything else. Uh, and liberty in America has been the escape from our Puritan past day by day and year by year. So that was a kind of second tradition. Uh, the third group kind of wasn't as interested in the liberty question. They were more interested in the wealth question. So they started to claim that basically in- industrious and enterprising Puritans had created an industrious and enterprising American character, and that had led to American business and wealth ever since. So these were three different traditions that were all sort of rising uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, What's interesting about them is that whether they agreed or disagreed, they all took for granted that the Pilgrims and the Puritans uh, were the origin of America, that basically we could explain America by going to that origin and looking at who they were and from there moving forward in our history to make sense of America. What's also interesting about all these traditions is that by this time, Winthrop's City on a Hill sermon, which later gets uh, treated as a kind of foundational text, is still basically not known and not used and not part of the conversation. So they can make all of these arguments about the Pilgrims and the Puritans and their supposed origin of America without any real reference to that sermon at all. It's still basically entirely ignored. One of the other really interesting things, and I really wish I had this before my comprehensive exams for my <laughs> PhD, was you go into extensive detail about two giants of Puritanism, uh, Perry Miller and Sackman Berkovich. Um, so Miller, we'll start with him, was an especially important figure for centering what it meant to be American around Winthrop Sermon. What was it about the Puritans, and particularly Winthrop's a model of Christian charity, that Miller found crucial for American identity? And what way, in, in what ways did he use Winthrop's sermon as a lens for examining the United States in the post-World War II decades? Perry Miller was maybe the, the most fun to write about. Um, he was... Um, he was he was a character, and and part of what he wanted to do with the Puritans relates to just who he was as a person. So there's a longer answer that gets into his own sort of longings and desires and and hopes and dreams as a scholar and as a person. But the short answer for Miller is basically that the heart of America for him was Harvard. So if he begins with the Puritans who founded Harvard, he he could argue that the true story of America started with a purposeful community of basically intellectually gifted and demanding preachers and politicians. We were basically an intellectual and communal culture first. That, that's Miller's argument. Uh, and it's basically the loss of those things that constituted for Miller the great tragedy of America. So he thought America had fallen from its communitarian ethos uh, and its deep thinking uh, into basically a mere sort of culture of individualism and thoughtless materialism. And becoming a, a superpower, basically, after World War II, for Miller, that only exasperated the fall that America was in. So the more sort of power we gained as a country, the worse off we were because we weren't doing good things with it. We were just being more or less individualistic, consumeristic, and materialistic. And for Perry Miller, those were all terrible things. 
So, so by turning attention repeatedly and, and more so as his career developed, he basically spent the last 10 years of his career focusing on this city on a hill sermon as the, as the sort of foundation of America. Um, Perry Miller hoped that by turning attention to that sermon and to the Puritans, he could, he could get back a little bit of what had been lost and, and sort of turn complacent Americans into a, um, to a greater sense of purpose for the nation again. And Perry Miller himself was a really interesting individual. You you bring in a lot of his biography into this, including things I didn't know about, including kind of a tailspin almost at the end of his life, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it was not a good ending for Perry Miller. Uh, I mean, he basically there's a kind of tragic uh, outcome in the sense that it, it it feels like his projects were all failing by the end. Um, in a way, he, he wanted to make sense of all of American culture, beginning with the Puritans and moving forward. And, and as he moved forward, uh, you get the sense that he, he basically isn't keeping the narrative together and can't keep the narrative together. Um, and of course, the other aspect of this is it's the 1950s. Um, civil rights is on the rise. Uh, it, it's impossible to ignore uh, questions around civil rights and, and, and minority rights and so forth. And basically, Perry Miller had spent his whole career doing that, ignoring those questions, um, starting with the, with the Puritans and moving forward. And so there is a real sense in which his work becomes less and less important as he ages, and he can kind of see that happening. Uh, and by the end of his life, he, he more or less um, basically kind of admits that he has failed and, and ends up kind of drinking himself uh, to death alone in a dorm room. It's, a, it's not a great ending for Perry Miller, but it is in, an incredible way of thinking about the, his commitment to this story and to the life of the mind behind this story and then how it all goes awry for him at the end. Yeah, for me, it, it seemed like it would have been almost impossible for this kind of synthesis, triumphalist narrative to survive not only the civil rights movement, but also, you know, the new social history that emerged from it, right? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about Perry Miller is it's not exactly a triumphalist narrative. I mean, it's more a narrative of, of tragic fall. Um, and so basically, the more power America amasses, the more he sees it falling from its great purpose. So so it's not exactly a triumphalist narrative. It is, however, a very white narrative from beginning to end for Perry Miller. I mean, that that's impossible to ignore. And and he spends, uh, you know, he even says, look, Jamestown lacked the coherence with which I could coherently begin. And that's a quote from <laughs> from Miller. Uh, he basically says, I'm going to ignore that. That doesn't that doesn't count for me. Uh, and so he 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 will purposefully just set aside parts of American history that he can't make sense of and can't integrate. Um, but at the same time, he wasn't just a sort of white triumphalist sort of figure for American exceptionalism. In fact, why I thought of him as so interesting in this story, he sometimes gets portrayed as the kind of founding figure of American exceptionalism, except his account of America is often thrown in the face of those who would just uh, give a kind of triumphalist narrative. He's constantly saying, look, we're, we're a mere consumeristic, materialistic culture. We've lost the life of the mind. Uh, all we care about is business, and all of this is bad. <laughs> and so, so he's a really complex and, and mixed figure in a lot of interesting ways. 
So today we do associate the phrase city on a hill definitely with a triumphalist narrative. We can probably attribute most of that to Ronald Reagan and how he used this for his political gain. Yeah, Reagan wasn't the first president to use that phrase. Who else used Winthrop's famous phrase and for what ends? And why do we end up associating that with Reagan and not these other presidents? So JFK was the first, and he used it in uh, in January 1961. Uh, He was leaving Massachusetts to go to the White House and and um, and you know assume the presidency, and he used it in a speech to the to the Massachusetts House, the state legislature. Um, and, and he used it to basically say, we need to, to think of Winthrop's lines as we form a government, uh, that we are a model to the world and so on. Um, but after JFK, so one use of it there, basically almost every other president after JFK used it more or less once or twice. By the time it comes to Reagan though, Reagan suddenly sees in this sermon, in this moment, in this line, a way to rewrite all of American history through it. Uh, and so he, Reagan in the 70s begins making it part of his entire political rhetoric and his entire political campaign. And it's re- basically Reagan who um, told a narrative of American exceptionalism that begins with Winthrop's claim that we shall be as a city upon a hill and that we have continued as a city on a hill ever since all the way up to Reagan who needs to reclaim that position as a city upon a hill for the world. So um, so for him, it, it it is a way of claiming that American history has always been dedicated to a purpose, but it's a very different purpose than what Miller was hoping for. So when Miller used Winthrop, he was basically having in mind this sort of communitarian ethos and a life of the mind. When Reagan uses Winthrop, he uses it to mean that America was founded in prosperity, power, wealth, uh, that we were basically set aside as democracy to be a model uh, to all the world. And so he basically turns on its head Miller's use of City on a Hill and then makes it um, central to his campaign. So if Miller basically made the sermon well known, it was Reagan who made it famous. And yet they have radically different uses of the sermon itself. And it's clearly also an example of the the sentence I read earlier, people can find in the past whatever they want or need, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and you see that uh, nowhere so plainly than in the uses of this sermon over time, which on the one hand mean one thing, and then, you know, 20 years later mean the complete opposite thing. Um, and that's, that's part of what fascinated me about the, the sort of appropriations of this sermon. In your final chapter, you compare and contrast this American exceptionalism exhibited in the rhetoric of the city on a hill with the rise of Donald Trump and the America First movement. And what you do is you suggest that although Reagan and Trump might have both used Make America Great Again in their respective presidential campaigns, Trump has abandoned the mantle of American exceptionalism. So I was curious, how does Trump represent something different from what came before him? I mean, obviously, there's many ways, but most most relevant to your book. Who has employed the message of a city on a hill against him, though? And has that approach been an effective counter message to America First? Yeah, so the the last chapter is really about, um, I got very interested in the relationship between American exceptionalism and America first as forms of rhetoric, because sometimes they're conflated as the same thing, but actually I think they're quite radically different and in some ways almost opposites. So American exceptionalism is a story of the nation. It's based on a certain mythic history of the nation, 
And it's based on a certain set of values that it supposedly stands for and has stood for always, right? Uh, so the progress of liberty, free enterprise, democracy, toleration, whatever, you name it. Um, and so what matters most in American exceptionalism is history, whether it's invented or not. Um, and on the basis of that history, the United States is seen as different from, better than, superior to all, all other countries, and therefore with a responsibility to lead all other countries. So um, so if history is what matters most to American exceptionalism, what matters most to America first is basically just borders. It doesn't actually care, it seems to me, that much about history. It cares about sovereignty, and it actually doesn't make many suggestions that America is different from or better than other countries in the world. It just happens to be our country. Um, so, you know, a lot of the 2016 campaign, Trump was basically saying we're, we're in fact worse than other countries. Our airports are not as good. Our, our roads are not as good. This is not as good. That is not as good. And basically he was promising to get us back in front of all these other countries. So if American exceptionalism is this idea that America was set apart as a model to all the countries to lead all other countries, all of its sort of moral dangers lie in overconfidence. And America First, on the other hand, is basically saying all other countries are a threat to us. We need to uh, maintain our borders. And, and basically, we're locked in a kind of competition. All countries are the same, and we all want to win, and we just got to make America win again. Uh, and in this case, the, the, all the moral dangers of America First kind of flow from basically insecurity rather than overconfidence. So I actually think that the dangers of both rhetorics um, are, are rather opposite in many ways. Um, and there's more to be said about it, but I, I actually find these two rhetorics competing with each other more than supporting one another. And I think you point out a bunch of different Trump critics or people who came before Trump who would be critics more vocally, I think, who have succeeded with a city on the hill message. Like Barack Obama was very successful talking in an American exceptionalist tone while also saying, you know, there are uh, – Arc of justice bends towards uh, the arc, arc of progress bends towards justice, right? And 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 co-opting MLK, um, but there's also a bunch of uh, mainstream conservatives who have been writing for some time who have used City on a Hill against Trump himself, right? Yeah, and, and that's that's that was remarkable to see. So one thing that we did for this project is we tracked the use of the phrase City on a Hill in the 2016 election. And basically, we gathered wherever the hits came in, uh, made a big file. We had 1,100 basically blogs, articles, newspaper accounts, and so on. And we could track who uses the phrase and in what kind of context. What was most surprising to us was that on both the left and the right, the main use of the phrase was in opposition to Donald Trump. Uh, and so we, we often think of this phrase, City on Hill, and American exceptionalism as, as more or less rhetorics of the right. But you're, you're right that by this time, Barack Obama had been using the phrase. It had been reappropriated and redesigned, but nonetheless used by the left in certain ways as well. Uh, and in the 2016 campaign, even folks on the right who basically opposed Trump were, were polling on City on a Hill to oppose him. And Trump himself, by the way, never uses, never used it in the 2006, and basically never uses it now. So the phrase is most associated in the 2016 campaign and afterwards with people opposed to Donald Trump. Uh, and so it's just kind of this demonstration of one of the radical realignments of politics that we're seeing is actually can be tracked through this phrase itself. That's absolutely fascinating. Uh, the last couple chapters of this book are a really penetrating 
insights into our current political moment um, and, and a very wide-ranging, sweeping book. Well, thank you. Oh, Abram, it's been a great uh, pleasure getting to chat to you about Sitting on a Hill, a history of American exceptionalism, and to learn more about this important part of U.S. history, memory, and myth. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. For everyone else, head to the Yale University Press website to purchase a copy of Abrams City on a Hill. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today at New Books Network. I'm Chris Babbitts, wishing you the best as you engage with cutting-edge works of history. <laughs>